de Dominion Podcast. De Dominion Podcast. The Dominion Podcast. There, it's it's bad. Like for me, anytime I want to go to the immigration, my heartbeat rises because I'm like, I don't want them to bring me back there. They treat you like a criminal, you know? Even if you're dying, they don't care. From the Media Co-op and CKUT, this is the Dominion Podcast. On the show today, we're going to be talking about the Canadian government's practice of indefinitely detaining migrants without charge. Migrant detention is growing faster than most other forms of incarceration in Canada. And today on the show, you're going to be hearing from three different people about it. We'll be speaking with a longtime migrant justice organizer talking about the history of migrant detention in Canada. And you'll also be hearing from someone about her experience of being detained. But we're going to start things off in Ontario. On October 17th, 17 migrants who were being incarcerated at the Central East Correctional Centre began a hunger strike. They're calling for an end to indefinite detention and the immediate creation of a 90-day limit. So I spoke with Syed Hassan, a member of the End Immigration Detention Network and known as Illegal Toronto, who's been supporting the strikers. Um, this is the third hunger strike by immigration detainees this year, and it comes on the heels of the federal government's announcement, which was a response to the previous strikes. The last strike ended on Canada Day. People were on hunger strike for 19 days, and at that time, the call was a limit, a 90-day limit on detentions, and they're specifically asking for a meeting with the minister. And the minister did not. Um, these meetings have not taken place with immigration detainees, even though there were solid actions across the country. Um, and instead, a few weeks later, announced on August 15th, $138 million assigned to expanding the immigration detention center in Laval, which is in Quebec, and in Vancouver and BC. They have not dealt with or even addressed the key questions, which are indefinite detention and the lack of you know, legislation that bars Canada from jailing people forever. Um, secondly, they don't address that people may not know that you can't really access the courts on an immigration matter. And they don't deal with the fact that people are being held in maximum security prisons, a third of all detainees. And so the detainees have gone back on hunger strike. They're on lockdown today, but from yesterday, what we understand is that four people are still on hunger strike. Um, a piece of information that I was actually surprised by was that 60% of all migrant detentions are happening in Ontario, mm-hmm. the, C- the CBSA renting space in Ontario jails. And mm-hmm. I, I saw a document that the End Immigration Detention Network actually released, I think it was last year, that showed that the Ontario government was profiting off of this arrangement. Can you talk a bit about that arrangement and how you got access to that information? So we had been saying that the federal government and the provincial government had a memo that they had signed and agreed to that allowed them to jail these people in the provincial government in Ontario. They refused to acknowledge that there was a memo, but it was released through um, one of the opposition parties in the provincial legislature. And so when we were reading it, it turned out that the federal government wasn't just paying sort of the daily cost per prisoner per day, but it was giving like an extra 13% on top 
to the provincial government. So the provincial government is actually making a profit of these detentions. Two-thirds of the detentions and deportations in the country actually happen out of Ontario. And so as a result, the vast majority of provincial detentions are in Ontario, even though there is a medium-security immigration facility here. We're just going to jump out here for a sec. Uh, something, something that's important to know is that the federal government and the Canadian Border Services Agency, or CBSA, are responsible for the enforcement of migration policy in Canada. They have three separate migrant detention facilities. One is in the province of Quebec in Laval, one is in British Columbia in Vancouver, and one is in Ontario in Toronto. But beyond these three centers, migrants are held in provincial jails. The federal government actually rents space in these jails just for this purpose. So you might just hear us talking back and forth between provincial jails and the federal detention centers. I mean, I, I'm sure you've read uh, Rachel Brown's really heartbreaking piece for McLean's last summer, uh, where she talked about a woman named Gloria Nawa being detained along with her toddler, Alpha. Gloria, yes, she's a friend of mine. Yeah. Uh, something I found was it was actually pretty difficult to find specific numbers on how many children the CBSA were actually detaining. Uh, uh, can you talk mm-hmm. a bit about those numbers? Absolutely. So um, Gloria Nawa, who's a friend of ours, we worked with her for a long time. Her child, Alpha, was born in the Toronto Immigration Holding Centers. That's the medium security facility I was speaking about. Um, And he celebrated his first three birthdays in that prison. The first words out of his mouth were radio check, which is what the guards say when they do a shift change. So Alpha was a Canadian citizen because he was born in the prison, right? The CBSA never acknowledged that he was in their custody because the Canada Border Services Agency is only allowed to control and have access to non-citizens, so permanent residents, undocumented people, temporary workers, study permits, work permits, etc. So how they deal with the question of citizens in their custody is they basically don't acknowledge them. And part of that non-acknowledgement is that Alpha was not able to see a doctor. So he saw a doctor in the first few months, and then the CBSA didn't allow him access to a doctor for a year and a half because they said that would you know, require resources, but they can't use the resources. Like they literally couldn't drive him to the doctor from the prison. And for a child who needs very regular medical care, as you can imagine how awful it was, he wasn't able to get his vaccinations in time, etc. And so the reason that it's impossible to find out how many children are in immigration detention custody is because more often than not, they're in fact citizens. So we know how many undocumented youth or children like under the age of 18 are in CBSA custody, but we don't know of all the children because when parents are arrested, they often take their kids with them into the detention center. The kids are arrested with them because if they fail to do so, they'll be you know, seized by CAS placed in some other home, and if the family gets deported, then they will never be able to get access to their children, right? So parents are making this very difficult decision of either leaving their children out or taking them in with the prison, and then we don't know what's happening to them. So um, we already know that prisons have huge numbers of, you know, lung-related diseases as a result of that air, stomach-related issues, because the food in prison is so bad. Obviously, the mental health impacts of being, you know, warehoused without any real interaction with most of your loved ones. And for children who are being jailed there, particularly like since you're born there and you grow up there, the impacts are bad, but also impossible to really tell. We don't know what Canada is doing to all these children. We won't know until they actually grow up. I mean, one of the the reasons for the last strike was that three people over the last nine months have died in migrant detention centers. And, mm-hmm. and I wanted to talk specifically about the case of Abdurrahman Ibrahim Hassan, 
who mm-hmm. died in, in June of last year. This summer, the SIU released a report about it. Uh, can you talk a bit about mm-hmm. what was in this report and, and just the circumstances of his death for people who are unfamiliar? Um, Abdurrahman Ibrahim Hassan, I've come to know his family really well over the last little while, and it's quite difficult for me to speak about. Um, so he was... Uh, he was in his 40s. He was a Somali man. He'd come to Canada at a young age. He, he had a number of mental health-related issues. Even though he arrived there as a refugee, his application was not completed. He didn't get his permanent residency, and it was revoked. Fast forward, the Rahman was in the Lindsay Central East Correctional Center, and all of the deaths that have happened, the last three deaths, for example, have happened in provincial prisons and not in the detention centers. He had been complaining of multiple health-related causes, but he was not being able to get access to a therapist or get further treatment. He was just on some medication. At least six different detainees have told us. We don't know, of course, if it's a fact that he was beaten up by the guards to the point that he was walking, crouched over, and he was showing a lot of signs of ill health and was asking for help, and it was being denied to him. Eventually, in June of last year, um, he collapsed. And he was taken to the hospital. We did not know what had happened to him. And so over the last year, we have been trying to get some facts and some questions back from the government. And what finally happened was because he was in the hospital, the prison officials had left and they'd asked sort of a local Peterborough police officer to watch over him. And so because he had died while police were present, there was an SIU investigation. That's the Special Investigations Unit. The SIU sat on it for a year, and then a few months ago, they released a report saying there was no cause of death. The cause of death is unknown. But in that report, what we also found is that Abdurrahman had a towel wrapped on his face by these police officers to um, hold him down onto a bed, and then he lost his vital signs. And so they're saying that he did not die of asphyxiation, so it wasn't the towel that was holding him down that killed him, but they don't know what killed him. And so that's where this story sits. Um, You know, another black man, immigration detainee, died in a hospital in police custody. And the only reason he was there was because he was in endless immigration detention. There was no end in sight. I mean, there's not even a Somali embassy in the country. There was no way he was going to be able to get travel documents to be deported there. And now there's a coroner's inquest that is anticipated. It'll likely be dealing with very, very small issues rather than the very big issues that we're facing. I mean, it's a tragedy that should not have happened. It's a family who's lost a brother, a son, an uncle, and uh, there is no one who's going to answer for it. And the only thing we can do is to fight as hard as we can to end the imprisonment of racialized people simply for the crime of being born elsewhere. Well, Hassan, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me about this. Thank you for having me. Take care.
It's not just rich people that own the media. I own my 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 media. The Media Co-op is a grassroots national news network that's owned by its members. Join us today at mediacoop.ca slash join. This is the Dominion Podcast. I'm David Zinman. So while it's clear that migrant detention is on the rise in Canada, what's less clear is its history. A lot has changed in government policy on migration over the past 10 years, and with so many changes, it can be hard to see the trends. So I spoke with Rosalind Wong, a longtime member of Solidarity Across Borders, a migrant justice group based here in occupied Teotihuacan or Montreal. So my first question is just how we got to this moment we're at now in terms of migrant detention. How did migrant detention, when did migrant detention start in Canada? That's a really good question. And I think it actually goes much further than we we think. So for example, laws and policies regarding migrant detention were really set out in 2001 when the IRPA came into creation. IRPA is the Immigrant and Refugees Protection Act. It was passed in 2001 and very much toted as the response to, you know, the terrorist reality of post-September 11th. But the fact is that the legislation was already prepared and had already been in the works since the 1990s. But if we really go back to where we first see Canada's use of detention of migrants and the othering of migrants, even of people who are Canadian, it goes as far back as the First World War. So in 1914, Canada issues an order in council regarding internment of about 80,000 immigrants from the former Austro-Hungarian Empire called Aliens of Enemy Nationality. And between 1914 and 1920, we see the development of about 24 internment camps and 8,579 Canadians are interned. While they're being detained, they're employed in forced labor programs. And what we see is that during the war, as more and more men are sent overseas as soldiers, creating a labor shortage, many of the detained migrants are then released on probation in order to work forcibly for private companies. And when the war ended, the program was continued for an extra two years because it was profitable. We also know of the more famous example of the internment of Japanese Canadians during the Second World War. But even though it's not exactly the same thing, what we are, what we do see is the use of political context, war in this case, used to otherize and target certain minorities, creating suspicion against them, and then the use of imprisonment and detention policies to basically be able to control bodies and use them for forced labor. And so that's the real beginning to migrant detention has taken place. So how do we get from these forced internment camps to the current regime of migrant detention that we're seeing play out today? I think as, you know, we we look to these historic examples and decry the very racist policies underlying these things. And if we fast forward to the 2000s in the context of the war on terror, I think all the nation states in the Western world used that context to create fear, to build up this discourse on national security. And so in 2001, when IRPA came into creation, 
That's where we see the creation of the Canadian Border Services Agency. We start talking about being able to detain people without charge. Migrants are the only population in Canada that can be detained without any criminal charge. And so with Trump's victory right now, there's been a lot of discourse about the use of fear convincing the population that we've passed a period of comfort and that we're now facing a time of great precarity, of great discomfort. And I think politicians have canalized that discomfort that we feel, and that could be for many reasons, right? Economic changes, the effects of globalization, but governments look for easy targets. And migrants for decades over, as we can see from the beginning of the 20th century, migrants have been an easy target. And so that discourse has continued, and that's allowed for a migrant detention system that basically escapes revision systems, transparency, and accountability mechanisms when it comes to migrant detention. And and the post-9-11 period that you're talking about, it was a time that saw a huge overhaul of Canada's policies around immigration, too. And so I'm wondering how those changes relate to the way that we've seen such an increase in migrant detention. Under the, the Harper regime, the Canadian government enacted some of the most dramatic changes to immigration law. In fact, in 2010, in Vancouver, there were 491 migrants that arrived on the shores of Vancouver in a boat called the MV Sunsea, filled with asylum seekers coming from Sri Lanka, the Tamil minority. And they were immediately put under detention, all 491 of them, men, women, and children. And Harper benefited from that instant to say that we needed legislation to make sure that this didn't happen, that these were illegal migrants who arrived through irregular means. And so Harper put in place laws to give the immigration minister arbitrary power to designate groups that they would see as coming from irregular means. So that could mean groups arriving that were three or more by means that were considered suspicious to the immigration minister. Under these definitions, probably, you know, the Underground Railroad would have been considered irregular in these circumstances. And anyone deemed irregular arrivals were able to be detained for up to a year without any review, without any chance of appealing it. And so Harper very much created a climate in which immigration detention would be the norm and a first resort instead of the last resort. At the same time, the Canadian government during these last 10 years have been putting in place radical changes to the immigration system. At the same time that they've been spending unprecedented amounts on migrant detention, the access to permanent regularization, so people being able to establish lives in Canada, has drastically been reduced in favor of more temporary forms of migration. So we've seen an explosion of, on the one hand, wealthy immigrants that can have accelerated processes because they are part of the investor class. And then on the other side, temporary foreign workers are being hired in higher and higher numbers to fill jobs that Canada doesn't want, but always through a very precarious contract in which they're tied to remain with their employer. If they have work accidents or they fall sick, the employer is in a position of being able to deport them without having any obligations to see to their health or to compensate them for any accidents. And so that polarization really showed that Canada moving in a direction of not seeing migrants as part of Canadian society, as being able to participate fully in Canadian society, unless it's through huge amounts of capital or through precarious, exploitative labor. So something that I think is not unique to this issue is that a lot of the media that we consume and a lot of the analysis that we get on this side of the border actually has to do with the American system. I'm just wondering how Canada's system of migrant detention compares I guess not just with the United States, but also other countries. 
Um, so Canada is actually one of the only Western countries in which there's no time limit on the amount that a person can be held in detention, which means the possibility of indefinite detention. On average, Canada detains its migrants for an average of about 25 days, which is longer than many countries in Europe, uh, shorter than countries like Australia or the United States. But Canada in 2010 had about 23 people that had been detained for more than 18 months. And so Canada, not having any limit, has had people held in detention for up to 12 years, for example, because they can't be sent back to their home country for whatever reason, because they've never been able to verify the documents of the person being detained. Um, And so for reasons really not related to national security or criminal charges, even though that's been promoted by different immigration ministers when justifying some of the more repressive measures to migrant detainees, the fact is that the overwhelming majority of migrant detainees are held for reasons of identification, unable to sort out their return to their home country. So if people are interested in learning more about migrant detention, are there specific places you'd like to direct them to or, or resources that you'd recommend? Mm-hmm. One great site is the Global Detention Project, which really goes into detail on migrant detention policy, all the laws that have created these norms, as well as the situation of different facilities across Canada. There's also a site called neverhome.ca, which gives a very full overview of Canada's immigration system, including detentions, including deportations, including the growth and explosion of temporary foreign workers and the injustices related to that. So a, a wide range of subjects touching on immigration in Canada. Well, thanks. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me about all this. You're welcome. Thanks, David. So we're ending the show today hearing from a woman living in Montreal who's experienced migrant detention firsthand. After coming to Canada from Nigeria as a refugee, CBSA denied her application, incarcerating her both in the Toronto and Laval detention centers. She has two young children, both born in Canada, who she's struggling to support while living here without status. I came to Canada since 2005 from Toronto and I came to Montreal. Then I was pregnant. I had my baby in like two weeks after I came, and since then I've been having immigration problems up till now. And can you explain how those problems started? I was having problems in my country. That was why I came to Canada to seek asylum. I flew from Nigeria to Toronto. I, I was misled by the person that did the traveling document that I used to travel to Canada for me because they told me that I shouldn't say anything at the airport because if I say anything, they might take me back to Nigeria and I didn't want them to take me back. So I kept silent. So because of that, they said I don't have eligibility to claim refugee. So I was given an exclusion order from the airport. So what did you do after your claim was denied? Like what was your day-to-day like at that time? I went on the ground because I didn't want to go to Nigeria. So I went on the ground for years. It wasn't easy though, but that's just the best thing for me to do. So I left the house, I went to stay in a friend's house. So I was trying to like survive with my kids, try to do 
some other things to bring in money for me so that I can take care of myself and my kids. It's very, very difficult. Because sometimes you just sit down and start crying. And you can't go back. Because if it's easy for you to go back, you would prefer to go back than just staying on the ground. It's not easy. Because anywhere you go, you don't feel comfortable because you don't know what can happen there, you know? You don't have an identity. There is a warrant on your name. When they take you, you don't know the next step. You can hardly walk. It's not as if you can really walk because you don't have work authorization. You don't have, you know, it's very difficult. It is a very difficult situation. So did the CBSA find you while you were underground? So in 2015, I just decided that what I was going through was too much and all that that I had to go and turn myself in at the border service. So I went to see them. I was having problem with my high, so I had a surgery. So I tried to explain to my agent that I had a surgery, so there is no way I could travel now because I still need to do the follow-up for a few months and all that. He now said there is nothing he can do. He can't wait for that, that I have to leave. They asked me to get a new passport, Nigerian passport, to bring to them. And so how did things get from there to being on the VAR? So when I went there, the lady just told me, the lady at the counter that signed for me just told me that my agent would like to see me. It was in the morning. I was even going to work. They asked me about my passport. I said, I've made the application, but I've not gone to Ottawa to get it because I will need money, and I need to work to get this money to do it. And I said, oh, but you said you had a surgery. You paid for the surgery, and you don't have money. Oh, I sent something to your lawyer. Look at what your lawyer gave me. But since this is what he gave me, I'm going to detain you. So I said, you can't just, you can't detain me like that. What you are telling me is new to me. I don't even know. My lawyer did not call me. He didn't tell me anything. I didn't even know that he sent anything to you. Now I said, there is nothing I can do. But my kids are, one is in school, the other one is in the daycare. How am I going to get them? He said, after I'll let you know if there is nobody to take them, I'll arrange for them. That was how I was taken to Laval. And I was there for like six weeks. And what was it like inside? There, it's it's bad. Like for me, anytime I want to go to the immigration, my heartbeat rises because I'm like, I don't want them to bring me back there. There, when you wake up in the morning at 6, you go for breakfast at 6, it's the same thing every day. In the morning, they give us bread with egg. It's so bad. Egg without salt, boiled egg. And in the afternoon, rice. Nothing on the rice. Like for me, I don't really eat because of what they serve there. I can't eat. And if you go outside, you cannot stay outside. They just give you like 10 minutes to play around. They send you in. When you go in the bathroom, somebody will pass by to see. Like you, They treat you like a criminal. And you cannot make complaints. Like for somebody like me now, I'm on medication. I use high drops. I told them that this is the prescription for me. Every 12 hours, they don't go by heat. The last time I made complaint, what the nurse told me, that is not their business. They only use it for me when they come to use it. If I don't use it, then I don't use it. I made that complaint. I called the Red Cross. I did this. When the immigration called me, they told me they are helping me by giving me my medication to use. It's not compulsory that they give it to me. They said I shouldn't complain because if I complain, they will stop giving me the medication.
So I was like, what is this? And even you spoke with my doctor, my doctor told you this is how I should use it. So they make things, and not only to me. Other people, when you're sick, you tell them you want to see the doctor, they tell you the doctor is not coming. The doctor is not there. Even if you're dying, they don't care. And were there kids inside? If one boy that was there is just five, six years old. He's supposed to be in school. He's at the detention with his mom. It's crazy. Other kids are in school. He's in detention with his mom. And this boy, he does not eat anything. Doesn't take anything. Sometimes he will wake up in the midnight. He will start crying that he's hungry. But he can't eat the food. Six years old boy. His mates are in school. He's in detention with his mom. It's so crazy. And nobody is saying anything about it. The last time she went to complain to the immigration, they said she doesn't have a choice. He has to stay there with his son. For my kids, I mean, I didn't allow them to bring my big kids because I did not even want my kids to see me in the position that I was. And a lot of people said that at the detention too. They treat you like a criminal. You don't want your kids to come there see you like a criminal. You know, it's just horrible. For my kids, I don't, I don't, I don't want it. I, I don't, I don't even want them to come and see me there because I cannot stand it. No. So where, where are things sitting for you right now after being released? When they release me, I have to. Somebody has to stand for me, like a guarantor. I have to pay a bond before they can release me. They want to know where I'll be living, and I have to go and sign every week. It's not easy, though, but I have to go every week to sign at 1010 at the immigration office. I have to sign that I'm still living in this country. That's part of the condition they gave to me. For somebody that comes every week to the office, there's no way you can walk. It's difficult, you know? So they make things tight. They make things difficult for you. They don't consider your life. They don't consider the life of your kids. It's a very, very bad and tough experience. It's because you have a difficulty. That's why you've come to seek asylum here. If there is nothing, you won't bother to come. So it's better they just help people that come in here. Help them. So that's the show for today. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe using any podcast app. Thanks again to Stefan Kristoff and DJ Johnny Ripper for the sounds you heard in this episode. The Dominion podcast is recorded at the studios of CKOT in downtown Montreal on occupied Kanagahaga territory. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next month. Just rich people that own the media. But by leaving out the most important things you need to know, they can elevate awareness to a new all time low. I own my media. I own my media. I, I own, own my, my media. media.
I own my media. I own my media. I own my media. The Media Co-op is a grassroots national news network that's owned by its members. But if it's just left out, can you say the paper lied? A lot of things that happened didn't happen after all. If there's no one in the forest who will put it in the news, I guess the tree didn't fall. Join us today at mediacoop.ca slash join. I'm joining today. You should too.